Much has been said about the right stuff that separates fighter pilots from everybody else. People have tried to define the fighter pilot as aggressive, type A, and arrogant, and they're normally right. They're supposed to be playboys and hard partiers, and certainly many fighter pilots have fit that mold. But Max Immelman wasn't one of them. Small, quiet, a vegetarian and teetotaler, not many would expect Immelman to be the aviator to strike fear into the hearts of British pilots on the Western Front. Nicknamed the Eagle of Delay, not by the German propaganda machine, but by those very same British pilots, Immelman was not the typical fighter pilot. I'm Brass. And I'm Mr. Chow. And we fly the F-15C Air Superiority Fighter. But really, we're just average fighter pilots. So luckily, this podcast isn't about us. It's about the truly extraordinary fighter pilots who've come before us. Welcome to Fight History. So Brass, I noticed that you were late today. Yeah, sorry, I was about 45 minutes late to uh, shooting the podcast today because I ran into a little trouble remodeling my bathroom. So I'm uh, redoing the shower in my downstairs bathroom, and I did the plumbing a couple weeks ago. I had to put a new shower valve in, which will come important in a few minutes. And today, I put in the whole shower surround, just like fiberglass surround, put the handle on, put the shower head on, turn the water on for the first time, starts coming out of the shower, you know, normally, kind of standing back, admiring a job well done, when literally the shower handle and the valves attached to flew across the room, hit the far wall, and a jet of water started coming out from where the handle was supposed to be. (laughs) No kidding. And so there was no way to turn the water off except to sprint downstairs and turn the water off to the house so it didn't have a, a shut off at the actual shower. And so that happened right before I was supposed to come here, and so I had to run to Home Depot Basically, there's like this little clip you're supposed to put in on the mixing valve, and it mm-hmm. keeps it in like the larger cylinder that's in the wall. I took that out two weeks ago, a month ago, whenever I did that. Totally forgot about it and literally just turned my shower handle into a projectile before I got here. So my wife's going to be home in like two hours. Just got to fix that before she gets there. <clears throat> These mechanical things make our life easier, but not if you don't use them correctly. And sometimes it, they fail, right? Exactly. Kind of like an interrupter gear. <laughs> kind of like an interrupter gear. We'll get to that, you know, a little bit later with Mr. Max. But speaking of not your typical fighter pilot, have you been, Mr. Chow? Pretty good? Yeah. 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 I had a nice little nap yesterday. and uh, That's yeah. right. Mr. Chow and I, you know, in addition to being podcasters, we, we do the J-O-B every once in a while. We got, we got scrambled yesterday on alert. Went to go uh, fly confidential areas, doing confidential things. But flew about a 3.0 yesterday in the old Eagle Jet. Yeah, it's probably probably sounds cooler than it is. It is, but there's nothing like waking up to a phone call at six o'clock in the morning when you're on alert. That'll get your blood pumping. Yep. Yeah, I've been on a cold shower kick recently, and I didn't need to take a cold shower yesterday after uh, getting scrambled with five minutes' notice. Yeah, I got him on the cold shower kick. By the way, I jump in my lake every morning. It's like October in New England, so it's pretty cold, but it'll, it'll get you moving. I know my lake. Uh, anyways. Let's get to Max Immelman here, our third pilot in the fight history archives. Uh, you want to start off with his early life there, Mr. Chow? Yeah, so Max Immelman, he was born in Dresden, which is uh, kind of close to the border of modern-day Czechia, uh, close to Prague, uh, so very eastern Germany, in 1890. 
Uh, so kind of a trend here. I think uh, all the pilots we've looked at so far have been born right around 1888 to 1890, a pretty small window there. Yeah, I mean, they've all basically been like 24, 25 years old at the start of the war. So his father owned a cardboard factory there, but he died in 1897, uh, and he was raised by his mother, Gertrude. And she raised him not to drink, not to smoke, and not to eat meat either, which must have been pretty unusual for that time. Yeah, I think it's unusual today in Germany. We were just in Germany last year for a big exercise, and I was the project officer, so I've been to Germany like five times in the last 12 months. And even on there, you know, when you're doing a day of planning with the German military, I mean, they're drinking beer at lunch. It's just sort of part of the culture, right? So not drinking beer in Germany in 1890 must have put him as a bit of an outsider. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and I did. I, I searched for vegetarians in Germany in the 1800s, and I did come across uh, this Vegetarian Society of Germany. Uh, I didn't really learn— Which had one person in it well, named Maximilian. Yeah, and actually it seemed like it was a bigger thing than than I would have thought. But I can't imagine that like the, the Beyond Burgers at the grocery store were quite as good in 1890 as they are now. They're not good now, so yeah, I imagine they weren't good back then. They're pretty good now. All right, Mr. Chow, let's just stick to fight history for you, I guess. Agree to disagree. Uh, so anyway, Max proved to be a natural engineer. He was always taking things apart and putting them back together as a kid, trying to figure out how they worked. Um, and then when he turned 15, he went to the military academy in Dresden. He didn't really actually have a whole lot of interest in the military, and he didn't like studying tactics. But they were visited by airplane manufacturers. Uh, and that was probably where he started to learn about airplanes. Yeah, he did. So he actually, I think, went out and visited the manufacturers themselves. So like got to go to the factories, got to go to the plants and got to see the airplanes fly. And he wrote home to his mother uh, in a letter that said, one seldom sees anything so splendid. Watching them fly was glorious. And I think that was kind of the moment where he got the bug where he wanted to go be a pilot. But in 1910 or so at the time, opportunities were exceedingly rare, and it took a good deal of money to get started, like we talked about with Roland Garros, so he didn't have an opportunity. And so... Yeah, there wasn't exactly like a, a pipeline at the time for producing pilots. No. And um, in Germany, too, at the time, they didn't invest nearly as much as everyone else did into airplanes. They were investing more into lighter-than-air, like dirigibles, and the Zeppelins and everything like that, when we talked about it in the last episode, but uh, they only had 46 airplanes at the start of the war. So <laughs> there was not a lot of opportunity to get started. And when it came to graduation time for Immelman, he decided not to pursue a career in the military to become part of the reserves, go guard. And then he went to me uh, study mechanical engineering in Dresden. So he likes to take things apart, put them back together. He's interested in how things work. He studies mechanical engineering. We've got a pretty good recipe for a pilot here. Uh, we do, but he is he's more of like a, a nerd. I guess is the word I'm looking for is what it seems like. He doesn't necessarily like to hang out with people. He just likes to get in the books. He likes to study, though he does like to do some hands-on stuff with taking things apart, putting them together. And he also likes to go on motorcycle rides, it said, by himself. But long motorcycle rides, like through the country on Sundays, was his main pastime. But as he is going to school in Dresden, Europe 
is going to war. Franz Ferdinand is killed in Sarajevo and war erupts in Europe. And what's interesting is a lot of people might think that when World War One kicks off, there was a lot of anxiety and people were very nervous about the future, which is true. But at the same time, there was something called the August Madness that happens, which is in almost every major capital of the combatant countries, there were these huge celebrations where tens of thousands of people came out into the streets to celebrate. And there was like a wave of euphoria that swept across Europe because people were so excited to get into this war. And this is was no exception in Berlin. And there's this huge wave of support for the war in 1914. And Max Zimmelman actually gets swept up in this as well. Even though he didn't like the military, studying tactics left him cold, as he put it. He was excited, actually, to get started in the war to the extent that, I mean, he was like waited with bated breath to get recalled into his former unit. And I think it's also important for us to kind of see the war real quickly through the eyes of someone in Germany in 1914. We kind of associate them with the bad guys, obviously, and, you know, and also the losers in WW1 and 2. You're welcome, uh, Europe. But for them, right, they thought they were fighting a defensive war when it kicked off. And this, the, the propaganda and some of the truth was that they were surrounded at the start of the war, right? The French had allied with the Russians. And so to the West, you have France, uh, obviously, but not just France. You have the French Empire, which also encompasses a lot of North Africa, right? To the East, you have the largest continental state in, in Europe, Russia, which is this huge monster with like triple the population of Germany. And then obviously to the north and also across the, the channel is England, but they're kind of blockading Germany from the sea. So Germany, both from a propaganda viewpoint and also from reality, they were surrounded and they're basically telling their population, hey, this is a defensive war, even though we're going into France and we're going into Russia, we're fighting not an offensive war, but we're fighting for survival. And so if you're a young German man, you think, hey, we're fighting for survival here and I have to go attack France in order to survive. And that's sort of the mindset for them. Addition to that, in 1870, Germany kicked France's ass basically in the Franco-Prussian War. Like they surrounded Paris. Uh, Germany got Alsace and Lorraine. So the eastern part of France was actually annexed by Germany in the war. And the Germans thought that they could knock the French out pretty quickly because of that. Um, Germans, Germany's population was like twice that of France's at the start of the war. So, and they led the Second Industrial Revolution in 1870. So Germany is a powerhouse. And they're, they're the ones who actually kind of tipped the scales a little bit in Europe and why all these countries thought they had to ally themselves in order to just stop Germany. And they were right. And so Germany is very optimistic at the start of the war, even though they're surrounded, because they have kind of every reason to believe that they can defeat France early on in the war. And so Immelman, he's got this in his mind. He wants to join, and he wants to join quickly so that he doesn't miss out on this war that's going to be, quote-unquote, over by Christmas. And so he waits around to get called up. And when he's waiting around, basically he sees this advertisement that says people with technical backgrounds are needed for the aviation service. And this is everything he's ever dreamed of. So he applies, but 
uh, it takes a while, like everything else. I mean, he's like writing a letter. It's got to be sorted through. So as that process is going on, he finally gets called up by his old regiment. But that was actually just a railway regiment. So he's called up and he then has to basically man his post behind the lines, uh, just monitoring this railway. And he has some good quotes there. He was not at all the glorious march to Paris that he expected it to, uh, to be. And what he writes is, Service is idiotically dull. I am near spiritual death, and it is disgusting to be on garrison duty during the war. So you get a little bit of his mindset there. Uh, whether or not studying tactics left him cold, he was definitely hot for the war. And he even volunteered uh, to go to the war as an infantry unit, to go to the front lines as an infantry unit because he wanted to get uh, be a part of the action so badly. But lucky for Max, uh, in November of 1914, he gets accepted into the aviation service uh, and he heads off to German flight training. And now this, now this German flight training was not terribly formalized at this point, but it was more formal than what, say, somebody like Garros or Piquot had prior to the war. Right? Yeah, like he was they, actually, they're, they're starting to figure it out. He's actually having some flight training. It was usually like two to three months of a little bit of ground school, and then actually flying with instructor, solo, cross-country, etc. I think it, it sounds like it was still kind of the Wild West a bit, because of, really because all this technology was so new and because it was advancing pretty rapidly at the time as well. So he's like writing letters to his mom, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, you know, saying, yes, it's very safe, don't worry. Uh, and then in the next line, he's talking about a terrible crash that happened to somebody in training. So it's... I mean, it's still flying in 1914. Yes. Right. So they had the Air Force has a total of 50 airplanes initially. They don't know what they're doing. They're still figuring it out. But I think you, what uh, one point you brought up is pretty important for us to talk about, which is most of our information that we got on Immelman are from his own letters or from his brother writing about him. And there is an issue of an unreliable narrator. And it's kind of an interesting thing here to talk about because in the next two episodes or in this episode of the next one, we're covering Immelman and Bolka and these guys both flew with each other and they will write about the same instance and they will give different accounts of it because we're getting their firsthand accounts, which is awesome, but we're getting it colored through their own perceptions. And so that's just important to point out. I'll I'll kind of uh, point out when Immelman says something and then, Bolka says something different about the same event, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of different things going on here. I mean, one is that I think uh, in in our experience as fighter pilots, we I think we know lots of people that uh, uh, kind of push the narrative that they want. Uh, maybe their their legend surrounds them a little bit because of the stories they tell. Um, not not really not to say that they're lying, but maybe they embellish some things here here or there, uh, and the legend grows, right? Uh, and so I think there's there's that aspect of it. And then um, there's also there's a great book called uh, The Things We Carried. It's a book about Vietnam and real. But really, it's a book about how, about war stories and about exactly what you're talking about, how everyone remembers what happens in these very high adrenaline, tense environments uh, differently. And it's often difficult and kind of a fool's errand to try to sort through and find out exactly what the facts are. Um, and kind of the, the point, what I got from that book is this idea that every war story is both true and also not true. Yeah. 
And uh, you're going to get a lot of that with Immolent and Bulka, I think. But the point is now their legends are bigger than the lives they actually led at this point anyways. Um, and like when we get to it later, I mean, the Immolent maneuver, even the maneuver that's named after him, <laughs> right. it's probably not, not actually what he did. Yeah. So the myth is bigger than reality at this point. But uh, yeah, when one interesting story that Immelman does write about is... Uh, while one day while he's out there with all the students, they're getting ready to, you know, do their flight training for the day. Uh, they see this French plane fly in low over the airfield and everyone was worried that this French plane was about to strafe. So everyone hits the deck, uh, except for Immelman who said the ground was too dirty for him. So he's standing up, even though he thinks this French plane's coming in to kill everybody. And then he watches as the French plane lines up on final and then lands and the two French pilots get out thinking they're at a French airfield and then have a very, very rude awakening when they get surrounded by the German military. Uh, Brass, have you ever flown to the wrong <laughs> airfield thinking that it was your home airfield? Um, I didn't quite get there. I did start lining up at a different airfield and luckily for me, it was just on an instrument check. So it was a check ride as well. Uh, but uh, there is a few airfields around our home airfield that look very similar uh, and I did bite off on one once. Yeah, sometimes when the runways and the buildings are arranged in similar ways, uh, it can be confusing. Uh, I, I had something similar happen, I think, I think within about six months of when you did Yeah, that. I think we both bit off yeah. the same field. Yes. We did. But um, luckily for us, you know, we were just turned around and land at the right airfield. These two French pilots ended up being POWs uh, for the rest of the war, basically. Um, but before they went off to POW camp, the German pilots took them over to the mess, uh, had breakfast and coffee with them and like chatted them up and then sent them off, which is like kind of a cool little thing that I guess was fairly common. If you were downed on the enemy side of the lines, you, you would go like have a beer with the pilots of the you know opposing side or have breakfast. They would usually do a toast in your honor and then send you off. I don't know if these guys get toasted just because they landed at the wrong field. Maybe they were toasted and that's why they landed on the wrong field. Uh, but uh, it is kind of as there was a lot of mutual respect among airmen at the time. Yeah, I mean, I imagine at at the time too, the aviation community internationally is so small. I mean, in the last episode, we were talking about uh, Piguad getting shot down by his former student, you know, and so with the with the community being overall being so small, I can imagine that it was uh, there was some kind of camaraderie there, even with the enemy. Yeah, absolutely, um, but. Anyways, once this little incident is gone, Immelman gets back into his training. And one thing that he writes home about, at least, is that he is kind of the consummate stick and rudder man, meaning wherever he wants to put the plane, he can put it. And he solos in about half the amount of time everyone else takes to solo. And quickly, he's through with his training. Is this and according to his? This is according to his own. Yeah. We'll get into this a little bit later when he gets flying with Polka and we can compare notes. But um, either way, he does end up getting through his pilot training and he gets assigned to flying section 62 or the Staffel 62 at the time Staffel meaning meaning the uh meaning squadron in german when immelman gets assigned to the front after his flight training this is in the spring of 1915 so this is at the exact same time basically that pigua and roland garros are getting their first kills and the french definitely have the upper hand uh, on the front lines in the air-to-air -air battle. Immelman gets to see that firsthand when he's conducting the observation flight over the front 
and he sees an enemy farm in biplane approach until it was about 200 meters away. Imlin wrote that suddenly he heard a tack, tack, tack and saw little holes appear in his right wing. But because he was on an observation flight himself and he had an observer in the back who was taking pictures, he just continued to fly straight even though he was getting shot up by this machine gun until his observer had actually finished taking all the required photos. And Immelman also wrote that only when he heard the ping, ping, ping of it, the uh, bullets now striking his own engine, uh, did he actually push the controls over and then dive away from the slower Farman uh, biplane. So you kind of see through both the stories of him saying it was too dirty for you know him to dive to the ground and then also just kind of flying straight and level as he's getting literally shot up by a British uh, fighter plane at this time. He's definitely got kind of this calm, cool, almost inhuman uh, sort of demeanor when he's flying or at least around the airfield. Yeah, and the the maneuver there that you talk, talks about him pushing pushing the nose over uh, and diving away that was a pretty common defensive maneuver at the time, right? Yeah, it was basically just get as fast as possible away from whoever's attacking you. And if you had a speed advantage, you, normally the fight just ended there. And then the other thing that you could do was just try to land because the planes could basically land in any field. And if they got to the German side of the lines and just landed, they were, would have been fine. And that's basically what he did in this case. And because um, the Germans were on the eastern side of the western front and the prevailing winds were from the west, typically the longer a fight went on, the more advantage the Germans had because the fight got blown over their side of the lines. The other thing that Immelman sees when he starts flying over the front lines is the destruction of World War One, and it starts to become a lot more real to him. Uh, again, he writes home to his mom that he understands what it, or he begins to understand what it truly means to have war in one's country. He says, "You don't see a single town or village; all have been burnt and shot to pieces." So he started. It's starting to, you know, go from that August madness. Oh, this is going to be awesome war. It's going to be over by Christmas. It's obviously not over by Christmas. He's getting shot up in his own airplane. He's seeing all the death and destruction on the front lines. I think it's starting to become a lot more real to him, kind of spring of 1915. One of the best things that came out of Flying Section 62, though, is that this was the area they put a lot of gifted pilots. And so this is where Immelman meets Oswald Boca, who we're going to cover at length in the next episode. But they become basically fast friends. They have a similar disposition. Boca doesn't drink much. Uh, both Bolka and Immelman both brought a dog to war, which is pretty cool. You can't exactly do that today, but they both brought their dogs along with them and they bond very, very quickly. And it's both of these guys who are going to get a visit from Anthony Fokker that will change the course of the war. Yeah, so if we remember from the Roland Garros episode, uh, we talked about uh, Roland getting shot down or maybe having some kind of malfunction with his aircraft. But anyway, he gets forced down uh, on the German side of the lines, uh, and they're able to get their hands on his aircraft. He's unable to destroy it, and they see that he's, a, he's shooting his machine gun through the propeller. Uh, they take this to Anthony Fokker, uh, and Fokker quickly designs the interrupter gear uh, and figures out how to fire a machine gun effectively through the, through the propeller without hitting the propeller. Uh, and so Fokker produces the Eindecker, 
Uh, and Eindecker just means single wing, basically, in, in German. Uh, so it's a monoplane uh, that now has a machine gun mounted just in front of the pilot, uh, and it's able to shoot through the propeller without uh, shooting the propeller off most of the time. Yeah, and what a, what a great natural for a call sign, Anthony Fokker. So, you know, most people have heard of Maverick and Goose and know that fighter pilots have call signs. One type of call sign you get is because you did some kind of stupid thing, and we'll come up with a name for that, right? The other type is based off of your name. It's a natural name or sort of natural call sign. So, I mean, Anthony Fokker, I mean, call sign mother, I don't know, something like that. I mean, it would have been a lot of fun, but it be it his naming. Goat, because he's the greatest of all time. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, the goat makes personal delivery because Anthony Fokker, in addition to being an engineer, was also a pilot. He makes personal delivery to the front lines of the first Eindecker. And this was big news. Everyone knew it was big news at the time. The Crown Prince of Bavaria shows up to see this. And while Fokker's there, he meets Bolka and he meets Immelman. Him and Immelman not, uh, basically hit it off immediately. They're both engineering types. And Fokker even offers Immelman a job at his factory after the war. And they're trying to decide who's going to get this plane. And the plane goes to Bolka because Bolka was the most experienced and generally considered to be the best pilot in flying Section 62. But when a second Eindecker shows up on the front, it goes to Immelman because he's considered the second best, essentially. Um, And although this is happening in sort of late spring, early summer of 1915, Immelman doesn't get his first flight until July of 1915. And he basically gets his first flight uh, from Bolka, who teaches him how to fly. And this is a little bit of the unreliable narrator that steps in. This is pretty funny. So... In Immelman's account, which he writes home again in his letters to his family, is that he, he hops in the Eindecker after a few little conversations with Bolka. He goes up, he does like 10 perfect landings, and everyone's in awe of how good he was in this Eindecker. And Bolka writes about the exact same account and says, they were all so worried, and he barely got the thing on the ground. So it's, it's pretty funny how the two of them, who are friends but they become rivals. They start to, their stories start to diverge right about that point, And they uh, continue to diverge as we get into more and more of these um, situations on the front. Let's call it on August 1st, just two days after his first flight in the Fokker Eindecker, Immelman awoke at 4:45 to anti-aircraft fire and saw 10 Entente airplanes dropping bombs on the aerodrome. The Entente is sort of the name for the allies in world war one. So that means a mix of French and British airplanes. Rushing to the airfield, Immelman saw Bolka, who told him that he was intended to go after the Entente and his Eindecker. Hopping into the other Eindecker, Immelman started after Bolka, who was already well ahead of him, and flying alone towards 10 enemy aircraft. How long do you think their ground ops took? <laughs> Not a whole lot. I think it's basically turn the engine on and then go. And actually, it's funny. They couldn't even, um, once the engines were on, a lot of these planes didn't even have brakes. So it was like, the engine's on and I have to take off. Because they also didn't have throttles. So that maybe explains why Bolka left him. Yeah, so the engine's on, I have to take off and just point in that direction. Um, also, a lot of times you talk about like ratios of you know how many airplanes would you go after. I guess 10 to 1 was good for Bolka. But um, either way, Bolka goes off and Immelman, who is a few minutes behind him, then takes off after Bolka. And by the time this whole gaggle reached Douai, 
Immelman saw two opponents attack Boca, who then went into a steep dive, so he wasn't there in time to help Boca. But he did see one enemy plane that had broken off from the rest, a two-seater, and Immelman went and attacked that two-seater. Over the course of about a 10-minute fight, Immelman had to fly, shoot, reload, and clear jams while he's still attacking this enemy airplane. Because although he had a synchronizer gear that worked, it was very prone to jamming. And so he had to literally keep clearing jams while he's shooting over the course of 10 minutes. But he was eventually able to force the enemy plane down on the German side of the front. Now, Immelman actually lands next to this plane and then went after the other pilot, even though he's now completely unarmed. <laughs> Outside of his Eindecker, he is completely unarmed. So this is either very brave or very stupid. And, and by one account here, this other pilot, who's a British pilot, I believe, yes, actually had a pistol with him and was shooting at him during, in the air. So who, who knows if he knew that or not. Exactly. Uh, but risky move to, to roll up on this guy. I know. Uh, but he does. And he wrote about what followed. So he said, I called out when still some distance away, prisoners. And then I, apparently has a very deep voice, prisoners. Uh, and then I saw for the first time there was only one man in the cockpit because this was a two-seater. He held up his right hand as a sign. He would offer no resistance. I went up to him. I shook hands and said, bonjour, monsieur. But he answered in English. Ah, you're an Englishman. Yes, you are my prisoner. And to which the Englishman responded, my arm is broken and you shot very well. At which point, Immelman, who was just in a life and death struggle with this guy, laid him out on the grass and like started cutting his sleeve away so he could actually apply medical aid to this English pilot who had just shot down and then had people call an ambulance to get someone out there to actually like take this guy to the hospital, which is so crazy that they were just in a life and death struggle. He's trying to kill him for 10 minutes. They land. Now he saves his life, sends him off. And it was only then that it started to dawn on Immelman that he had just gotten the first kill on a Fokker Eindecker. Or I should rephrase. There was one of the pilot who got a, a kill on another Eindecker, but uh, he had gotten his first kill and the first kill for flying Section 62 uh, in a Fokker Eindecker. And this was kind of the beginning of uh, a pretty good time for the German Air Force, right? Yeah, they have a complete technical superiority now in... Um, in fighter planes. If we, we kind of went through this progression of Roland Garros is the first fighter pilot. Adolf Pigua is the first ace. But the Fokker Eindecker is really the first fighter plane. It's your, it's not extraordinary in its aerodynamics or anything, but it's the first real gun platform, as we'd call it, right? It has an actual synchronized machine gun. It's faster than the observation planes that can carry the multiple machine guns. And so it's your real, it's your first fighter plane. And only the Germans have it. Yeah, so I think this gets dubbed the the Fokker Scourge. Yeah, that's such a great word. We should bring Scourge back. So now we've got Bolka and Immelman, and they start kind of having a competition as they start to rack up kills at this point. Right? Yeah, Bolka gets his first kill three weeks later in a Fokker Eindecker. Bolka had a couple kills prior to this in two-seaters, uh, but it starts this fierce rivalry. And even when we go back to that unreliable narrator thing, when Immelman talks about getting his first kill, Bulk is like, I'm the one who went after everybody. I had a his gun actually jammed in his Eindecker, and he couldn't clear it, which is why he broke away. And then he's like, and then this Immelman, so lucky, he's like, one guy just shows up late to the fight, and Immelman jumps on him. So it's kind of funny, but they 
they're still friends, you know what I mean? But the rivalry starts to pick up, but they actually start using coordinated tactics. And so in this dawning age of the fighter plane, these are the first two guys to really start developing any tactics. And so when they're flying together, one guy would dive in on an attack, another would, or, and then the other person would wait till that attack was over and then dive in. And they use these some semi-coordinated tactics to start taking down these mostly observation planes. Kind of an engaged support kind of role there. Exactly. Yeah. The first wingman, if you will. Um, but it is funny. So we talked a little bit about like what it took to be a kill and what it took to be an ace in the last episode. But it is interesting that I guess the only equivalent in the military would be like sniper kills where you actually know how many kills you have. But these are very widely publicized and it's almost like sport. And a lot of times when these guys are writing about it, that's exactly the word they use. It's great sport. Even a couple of the guys Immelman shoots down say something like that to him. And so they gets they start to basically become famous. And it's a little bit like seeing your favorite quarterback throw touchdowns or batter get a home run and every kill gets publicized and they start going back and forth to see who can get the most kills and it's called the ace race of germany at the time and there's literally like poems written about these guys in not only german um newspapers but also they're getting publicity uh publicity in allied newspapers as well yes i found an article in the the salt lake city tribune uh (laughs) about immelman from 1916 uh and talking about his exploits and how he has become kind of the the celebrity of the time. And, and uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. It is. And their fame reaches new levels in January of 1916 when they get awarded the Pour Le Merit. That's terrible pronunciation. Pour Le Merit. It's, a, yeah. it's actually, ironically, a French name for a German award. Isn't it just the Blue Max? Can we just call it that? We're going to call it the Blue Max for Max Immelman, by the way. So basically, Germany's Medal of Honor is the Pour Le Merit, but they it's nicknamed after the Blue Max when it's given to both Immelman and Bolka in January of 1916. And the official communique reads, Lieutenants Bolka and Immelman each shot down an English machine to the northeast of Turkong near Bapam. Yeah, I need to take a French class. Uh, in recognition of their magnificent achievements, His Majesty the Emperor has been pleased to confer the Pour de Remert Order on the two dauntless officers. And the other thing that's kind of cool is, in addition to that uh, award, that decoration, which really, I mean, if they weren't on the map already, they, they were now, uh, they also got a silver goblet. And it said, to the victor in aerial combat. And something that uh, Richthofen would later do the Red Baron, is he would get a goblet made it for every one of his kills. So he had like 80 silver goblets, but it's kind of cool. It's a lot of goblets. It's a lot of goblets. You can have a big party with that. But um, the point is this like small, you know, kind of quiet outsider type of guy here is now a worldwide celebrity. He starts dining with the King of Bavaria. He gets fan mail every day. And he's doing all this while still fighting on the front lines, which is kind of crazy. But he's now a worldwide celebrity. And speaking of developing tactics, I mean, I think probably most people who have heard the name Immelman before associate it with the Immelman maneuver. Uh, And I think the most interesting part of this is that what we consider to be an Immelman maneuver 
is probably not at all what he was yeah, what it's he was funny. doing in his airplane at the time. I have read different things about this, but pretty much all of them agree that the Immelman is not what he did, or the, what we call the Immelman today right. is not what Immelman actually did. And the Immelman is something that every fighter pilot learns how to do right now in pilot training, and we had to do it. And it's basically like the first part of a loop where you pull up into the vertical, and then once your wings level inverted, so at the very top of your loop, you just roll out. So you just do a half aileron roll, so now you're facing... Uh, you know, the right way up, and then you fly out of it. But from what I've read, the most likely maneuver that Immelman used was he would go in and attack uh, attack an observation plane, and then as he was done with his attack, he would pull straight up, basically pure vertical, and then as his plane was pointing pure vertical, it would basically stall out. So it's he kind of hanging for a moment directly, you know, pure vertical, and then he'd kick the rudder over so that the nose would then point back down toward, towards the earth. He'd regain his airspeed, but that whole time the observation plane was flying away, and he was in another perfect position to then attack that observation plane. I'm using my hands around the microphone, obviously, to describe all of this. Yeah, so I think the, the point is that it was a it was a maneuver that was used, used to preserve energy, right? So he would start the attack higher than the aircraft that he was targeting, so he had more potential energy. He would convert that into kinetic energy as he's going downhill. He's getting fast. He prosecutes his attack, and then he pulls back up into the vertical again, and he's converting all of that kinetic energy back into potential energy again. And now he's able to set up his next his next attack as he's executing that kind of hammerhead maneuver, the Immelman, whatever you want to call it, uh, and he's able to kind of go back and forth, and especially with in, in an aircraft like the Eindecker that probably had a speed advantage over the Scout-type airplanes that he's attacking, uh, that would be a very useful maneuver. Yeah, and it was it was incredibly important in these underpowered planes because it took forever to climb up. So you had to preserve every little bit of energy you, you had. They, they even talk about, hey, I, you know, I was out on a mission and I saw someone 1,000 feet above me, so I just I, I gave up. Because yeah. It's going to take me 10 minutes to climb that high. They, they talked about, like, screwing up, you know, like a actual uh well screwing up well i guess i guess you don't want to screw up but that, that they talked about screwing higher right because that's kind of what they had to do just like a screw just keep, stay in a circle for a long time to even climb up to altitude and so you had to preserve every little bit of energy and that was immelman's way of doing it and that's kind of how him and bulk would go through these coordinated attacks at this time in january he had seven kills him and bulk both were tied with seven kills apiece um and by the way, I think more or less what, what his maneuver is basically is what we call the reposition today in dogfighting. It's not quite as dramatic, our repositions, but it's more or less you're doing a maneuver to stop your closure, force that guy out in front of you again, and then attack. But um, these coordinated attacks that he was using with Bolka came to an end around February 1916 because Bolka gets pulled into the Battle of Verdun, and he gets pulled into the air battle above uh, Verdun, and we'll get into that on the next episode uh, because it's it's pretty fascinating. But at, it's at this time that Immelman gets assigned to cover the airspace over the city of Lillet, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, and that's where he really gets his reputation from the British pilots. The British basically own that part of the line for the Entente. He's flying exclusively against them. And like we said, his celebrity is pretty big at this point. In one case, he shoots down a a British pilot, he lands next to him, introduces himself, and the British pilot says, 
Well, if I'm to be shot down, at least Immelman is my conqueror. Which would be so cool if someone ever said that to me, man. Uh, it's probably never going to happen, but I know. Imagine how devastated they would be, though, if they found out it was Mr. Zhao. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be so embarrassing for them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Why didn't you kill me? For context, uh, Lillet is uh, in northeastern modern-day France, uh, right on the, the border with Belgium, kind of close to Dunkirk, about 40 miles southeast of Dunkirk. Yeah, so basically he's assigned to cover that airspace up there, and he's kind of a one-man shop is what it seems like. Illman's flying up there, and he's continuing to rack up the kills, but the tide starts to turn in 1916. The Allies haven't been just you know, taking this sitting down. Uh, and they start to close the gap. They still can't figure out the interrupted gear for a while, but they do um, come up with a Newport 11, and it's basically aerodynamically superior to the Eindecker, so it's faster, it can climb better, it can turn um, tighter, and they just mount an over-the-wing machine gun, so it still has a machine gun, it's just not in a, in a great spot. Uh, and then the other thing they do is they start grouping their flights together into large formations, and they do have a, a big... Uh, numerical superiority, even if they don't have the technical superiority over the Germans. One thing that isn't talked a lot about in uh, World War One, but you can make a good case. The biggest reason the Allies won World War One, or the Entente won World War One, is the British blockade of Germany. So the British completely blockade all trade in and out of Germany, and the Germans are a huge material shortage throughout the course of the war and at the end i think the average german citizen is surviving on like a thousand calories a day mostly of turnips and so it's hard for the germans to catch up even though the germans basically led the second industrial revolution they were the industrial powerhouse of steel and everything else prior to the war it starts taking its effect and they're having a harder time keeping up with the allies because the allies are getting all their material from the americas at this time but uh, getting back to the air war, what's happening is the Allies are starting to flex their muscles in terms of their numerical superiority. So they're coming over in flights of 10, and you've got one Fokker Eindecker out there uh, who's trying to attack these guys, but it's a lot harder when they're covering each other, basically. And so Inland's still scoring kills, but uh, it's getting a lot harder and a lot more dangerous. And the other thing that the allies are doing is the airplanes are getting bigger and they're getting more well-armed, almost like the flying fortresses that you see in World War II. So most of these that, that we're talking about here probably still had rear-firing machine guns on them as well, right? They did, though it's a mix. Like The British especially had a lot of pusher airplanes, which were slow, and basically the prop is behind the pilot, but that did allow them to shoot forward. In one instance, Inland writes that he attacked a big English fighter with two engines and two guns somewhere east of Arras. And he says, in the course of the fray, the fellow shot up my undercarriage, the bracing wires, the oil tank, petrol tank, engine cowling, and the fuselage. I heard, but I heard the bullets whizzing by and the whistle of various parts as they flew off, but nothing hit me. So even though he's enjoying a lot of success, even though he's a celebrity, it's not all smooth sailing. He's still in a freaking war here. And he is having like more and more close calls as the British and the French start upping their game in terms of the air war. And he's seeing the darker side of this as well, right? Like at one point he's talking about watching an observer fall out of a, a Entente airplane 
and land in the trees and just be impaled by all the branches in the trees. Yeah, it's pretty pretty gruesome. You have to imagine what that toll takes on a young man. Like after months and months of this is very close in combat. Bulka had a quote: he would only shoot when he could see the straps of the enemy's helmet, almost like the whites of their eyes. So this is he's usually a couple hundred feet away, shooting them with machine guns. He sees that instance. He sees another one in which, or a few times in which guys basically throw their hands up and try to surrender. And they just nosedive into the earth because the plane's too shot up and he's watching them burn to death. So he doesn't write about it much, but you can imagine that's also adding to the stress because he knows that one day that could very well be him doing that. Um, and as the war wears on, by the by June or so of 1916, he's definitely feeling the strain of having been on the front lines now for two years. He... Uh, at this point has about 15 confirmed kills, which just means the airplanes. So as far as how many people he's killed, it could be actually more than that because a lot of these were two seaters. Um, but the war is definitely starting to wear on him. And the, there are reports that people said he was a little reserved, withdrawn. He start, he stops writing home to his family. And I think in a larger sense that there was this huge height of optimism and January of 1916 as you know Immelman and Bolka getting the Blue Max he's the uh, the infantry's even naming it the Blue Max after after Immelman because they want to get rid of that French sounding name the Germans started their huge offensive in Verdun and they thought you know winning the war just one one big offensive away uh, but now it's six months later five months later the Germans are bleeding as badly as the Allies in Verdun uh, the air war starting to swing in favor of the Allies. Immelman's starting to get burnt out, and there's a lot less optimism in the air as Immelman takes off on the evening of June 18th. And this is, uh, by many accounts, like his fourth or fifth sortie of the day. So you can imagine some of the exhaustion. I can tell you that flying a fighter jet nowadays twice a day is absolutely exhausting. Flying it once is pretty exhausting. Um, and although they're not dealing with the same G's and whatnot, they are in combat. So the amount of strain on his nerves and whatnot must have been incredible. But he takes off with four other members of his Stoffel to attack a flight of FE-2Bs. And so at this point, the Fokker Eindecker has been widely distributed. He's Him and Bulk are not the only ones flying it by any stretch of the imagination. And you basically have four Eindeckers attacking a flight of what are called FE-2Bs or British Fees. And they are pusher planes that have two machine guns up front, so two-seater. But they have, they're have they pretty well armed. And although they're slow, they're using mutual support to basically try and protect each other. And what happens next is sort of lost in the fog of time and war, or at least it's disputed. Uh, we know what the end result is. But uh, Immelman and his flight attack these four fe2bs and there are all these german citizens on the ground who are watching it so i'll let them actually tell you what they saw the tiny swift fokkers were like swallows compared to the big lumbering sure-flying double-deckers there was an increase in liveliness aloft as the fokkers overtook the biplanes and swooped down upon them with frightful speed amid a mad rattle of five machine guns our hearts stood still now the Fokkers have reached the enemy, and they have turned themselves loose again. 
Then they pounce with fresh strength on the British biplanes, which are now flying in confused circles. One of the Fokkers singled out his prey and doesn't leave him. While the big biplane only seeks to fly lower or higher, the Fokker cuts off the escape each time. Suddenly the big machine reels. Hurrah, he's hit, is roared from thousands of throats. And what the crowd just watched and were trying to describe was Immelman scoring his 17th kill and last kill as the Eagle of Lillet. He downed J.R.B. Savage, part of RFC 25, who was killed in that action. The quote-unquote confused circles that the Germans saw the Fees flying were actually a Luftberry. So basically, the Fees got all in the same circle, so they're flying behind each other. And what they're doing is they're trying to prevent anyone from getting on each other's 6 o'clock because the airplane that's flying behind can attack the enemy airplane. And I think we call that a hog circle nowadays. <laughs> yeah. They're circling the wagons. And as this is happening, Immelman tries to get his second kill of the day. So he lines up uh, against another fee. He dives in for attack. And then he climbs in that pure vertical that we talked about earlier. But as he is doing this, Corporal James H. Waller, which was in a fee behind the one that Immelman had just attacked, spots Immelman's Eindecker, lines up his machine gun, and waits until Immelman is at the exact apex of his maneuver. And as he's sort of hanging there in midair, Waller takes aim, fires, and he sees that his shots have an immediate impact. He thinks he struck the propeller and the engine, but what happens next is seen on the ground. And someone reports that they were watching closely and noticed that the Fokker was making curious tumbling motions riding itself like an animal mortally wounded, then fluttering down, first slowly and then faster. A sudden jerk brings the machine again to a horizontal position, and they think, thank God, they start to breathe easier, when suddenly the Fokker overturns completely, the tail falls off, one of the wings flutters off, and with an uncanny whistling sound, the machine falls from 6,000 feet earthward and strikes with a dull thud. And it's there where Immelman is killed in action. And the controversy around this is whether or not Immelman was killed by Waller or by his own machine. And so, as I said, Waller reports seeing that he struck Immelman, but the Germans claim that Immelman's Eindecker lost its propeller because the interrupter failed. And this does have some credence because weeks earlier, Immelman actually shot off his own propeller when his interrupter failed, and he had to make an emergency landing behind enemy lines. And so to this day, it's disputed on whether or not Immelman was shot down by Waller, or if after going on to the attack with uh, his first fee and climbing up, that he realized his own propeller had been shot off during his own attack. And what happened... Well, what would happen is if you shot off your own propeller on one of these big engines with the whole engine is spinning, it becomes unbalanced and it can shake the whole airplane to pieces, which is why some people point to his tail falling off and his wing falling off as to maybe being indicative that he shot off his own propeller and his plane succumbed to the, to the vibrations. But, and, and the first time this happened, I mean, he was able to be Johnny on the spot and turn off his engine very quickly so that it didn't become an issue and he's able to glide and land, right? Exactly. But in this case, they're not sure exactly if he was 
didn't notice it and it shook the plane to pieces before it could do that, or if it was indeed Waller who struck the engine, maybe even struck Immelman himself. Uh, or, he, or maybe he shot off Immelman's propeller. Or he shot off Immelman's propeller and the same thing happened right. where he shook, the airplane shook itself to pieces. Uh, either way, when Immelman crashes, German soldiers rush to the down Fokker and pull him from the inside. And the first thing they see is that blue Max that he was wearing. So he was wearing his award. And it's very well known there's only two pilots in the German army who have it, Max Immelman and Oswald Bolke. And when they see his initials, MI, on his uniform, they know they've just pulled Max Immelman out of this crash. And we have a picture of it. I mean, there's basically nothing left. And there was, unfortunately, probably not much left of Max Immelman. Max Immelman was 25 years old when they pulled him from the wreckage of his Eindecker monoplane. He was not the typical fighter pilot. He was, by all accounts, not arrogant. He was not a hard drinker. He was not a playboy. He was not a partier. But he was, for sure, a fighter pilot. And something that I've been thinking about in relation to learning all this about Max Immelman, Mr. Chow and I have both had the pleasure to be on some pilot hiring boards. And on those boards, we try to come up with criteria of how we're going to pick, uh, you know, the next fighter pilot. And these are always very competitive. And there's always something that we're trying to define that's always very difficult to define. That little something that makes someone not just a good pilot, but a good fighter pilot. And in one instance, we even defined it as a meat eater quality. Uh, something that would, you know, because we want to find someone who wants to go on the attack, someone who actually wants to be in combat and not just fly an airplane. And I think after reading all of this about the vegetarian, cold hearted killer, Max Immelman, we might have to redefine that meat eater quality as something a little bit more specific to combat. But a lot of times on these boards, we are, we're looking at a resume, we're looking at standardized test scores we're looking at a cover letter and we're trying to read between the lines on these things and maybe a couple of letters of recommendation and we're trying to read between these read between the lines and try to interview the right people because we might get 150 applications for maybe 20 interview slots and then out of those 20 interviews we get 20 30 minutes with each of these people to hire maybe one person to hire one one maybe two people and then we send them out to pilot training and uh, if they make it through, great. But then they come back to the squadron, and maybe they're a good fit, but maybe not. Yeah, I mean, out of the out of that whole process too, of we had 150 applicants, and then we hire one or two people. It's not uncommon that the two people we hire don't even make it through pilot training. Right. And so, and I was thinking, would we have hired Max Immelman? Probably not. The guy doesn't like the military. He's an engineer, so that, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a plus and a minus because he's sort of, you know, very uh, academically minded, it seems like, initially on. And then he's sort of an outsider. He's not very, you know, engaging by all accounts uh, as a personality. So it's sort of hard to read between the lines of these letters that were written 100 years ago and go, what qualities did this guy have that made him such a killer out there on the front lines? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's difficult to know. And a few years ago, I remember we had a board, and there was um, a young guy on the board who was he was a student at Harvard, and he was he was big into poetry. I remember, and he like sang in the choir. Um, and and everybody on the board kind of got a kick out of that. And he was a really great guy, but he didn't really seem to have that killer instinct, right? 
And so we hired a few other folks. The other folks that we hired didn't make it through the program. And I, I've kept up with this guy, and he is now flying F-16s. So you just don't know. Yeah, it's hard to – it's almost an impossible task to put your finger on what would make someone successful and what makes them not successful. But I think the point is that there is no typical fighter pilot. You know, Tom Wolfe wrote that book, The Right Stuff, I don't know, in the 50s or something, 60s. And it became part of popular culture – along with Top Gun of like what a fighter pilot looks like and what they do. And there's certainly elements of truth in it. But I think for every fighter pilot that fits the rule, there's one that breaks the mold and doesn't. Right. And Immelman was one of those first guys that you look at and you go, not your typical fighter pilot, but a goddamn good fighter pilot. Where can uh, folks go if they want to learn more about Immelman? Yeah. So the primary source that we used for this podcast was a book called The Eagle of the Lay which was written by Immelman's brother and has a lot of Immelman's letters that he wrote home to his family during the war. They can also Google it. Fight History is hosted by Brian Burke and Mark Silvers. Written by Brian Burke and produced by Mark Silvers. Music is by Cody Martin. Check out our blog at www.fighthistory.com. We do have to come up with a better way of ending these, I think. <laughs>